This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, what is the association between child abuse and neglect and antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy. If you find this video to be interesting or helpful, please like it and subscribe to my channel. That way you won't miss anything new. Now when we talk about the study of child abuse and neglect. I'm going to refer to this concept as childhood maltreatment. And when we talk about antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy, we're talking about a disorder and an area that's studied, but it's not a disorder. So antisocial personality disorder is an official mental health disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, but psychopathy is really an area that's studied that's similar to antisocial personality disorder, but they're not the same thing. In 2016, we saw a study by Dargis and colleagues that looked at this question, and really they looked at specifically childhood maltreatment, antisocial personality disorder, psychopathy, and conduct disorder. In this particular study, they were only looking at males and only looking at criminal offenders. So this was a population that was sampled from a prison. Now, childhood maltreatment and all the various forms, emotional, physical, sexual abuse, neglect, has been studied with its relationship to mental disorders a number of times. And there is a link that's apparent between childhood maltreatment and anxiety and depression. And that link is fairly clear. The relationship to personality disorders, and specifically to antisocial personality disorder, is a little less clear. However, generally, we do believe there is some connection there. Now, when we look at antisocial personality disorder specifically, again, we're talking about a diagnosis in the DSM. There needs to be at least three symptoms present from the symptom criteria, and there's a few other criteria as well. So the symptom criteria for antisocial personality disorder include repeatedly engaging in behavior, that violates social norms, lying, impulsivity, irritability or aggressiveness, disregarding the safety of others, irresponsibility, and lack of remorse. We also see three other symptom criteria. An individual must be 18 years of age or older. They must have had symptoms of conduct disorder before the age of 15. And the behavior from the symptom criteria can't exclusively occur during the course of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Depending on the research we look at, we know that about 70 to 80% of male prisoners meet the criteria for antisocial personality disorder, but only 15 to 25% meet the criteria for what we refer to as psychopathy. Again, psychopathy is not a mental disorder, but it's an area that's studied. And really, psychopathy has a complex relationship with antisocial personality disorder, but in general, what we see is some of the Antisocial characteristics from antisocial personality disorder are present in psychopathy, like being reckless. 
And there are other characteristics that are added on. So really, it's similar to antisocial personality disorder, but there are a few extra characteristics we look for, including grandiosity, callousness, shallow affect, and pathological lying. Of course, lying is one of the symptom criterion we see with antisocial personality disorder. So in general, we would say that almost all individuals who would qualify as having psychopathy would have antisocial personality disorder. But many individuals who have antisocial personality disorder would not qualify as having psychopathy. So we know that both of these constructs, antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy, are linked to childhood maltreatment. The findings of this particular study, though, were fairly interesting in terms of the specifics, in terms of the factors that were identified. For example, the relationship between childhood maltreatment and psychopathy was strongest when looking at physical abuse and the antisocial behaviors seen in psychopathy, as opposed to those other behaviors like grandiosity or callousness. We also saw with these results that conduct disorder was strongly associated with a history of sexual abuse, but antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy were not strongly associated with sexual abuse. So this finding was a bit of a surprise because we usually do think of sexual abuse as being a risk factor or possibly causal, what we refer to as etiological, to a number of symptoms and mental disorders. So usually we would think of sexual abuse as a risk factor for antisocial personality disorder and by extension to some degree psychopathy, but that's not what was found here. The relationship with conduct disorder though should be noted because conduct disorder of course has an association with antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy by itself. The last finding of this study was in terms of the relationship with childhood maltreatment and conduct disorder symptom severity. And what was found here is that childhood maltreatment has a strong relationship with the symptom severity with conduct disorder, and it's much stronger than the relationship between childhood maltreatment and antisocial personality disorder symptom severity, as well as psychopathy symptom severity. So again, what we see here with this study is what we've seen with a lot of studies when we look at childhood maltreatment and the possible development of other mental disorders. And that is that if we want to reduce the risk of violence, antisocial behavior, as well as a number of other symptoms, we need to deliver treatment early on in life. So early treatment is not only important, it may be in many instances necessary in order to really reduce the risk of antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy. Today's question is, what is the McDonald triad? So the McDonald triad is also referred to as the homicidal triad. And it's based on research that took place in the early 60s by a researcher named McDonald. And it looks at three specific factors that he believed were linked to violence in adulthood. So these are three factors that would occur in childhood that he believed led to violent behavior later on. The three factors are engaging in arson, torturing small animals, and bedwetting. Now, when he refers to bedwetting, he's talking about bedwetting after the age of five. So research was conducted after this research, which supported that this McDonald triad tended to predict violent behavior. There was an association there. Then research was conducted after that that showed little or no association between the McDonald triad and violent behavior. So does the McDonald triad 
predict violent behavior? Well, it doesn't appear to in many cases, but one of the problems here is that we're looking at a low probability event. Violent behavior, even though it seems common, like it's featured on a lot of television shows and in movies, it's not really that common when you compare it to how many people there are in the general public. So you're talking about relatively common behaviors, particularly bedwetting, trying to associate a behavior like that with a low probability behavior is difficult. Now, we do know that arson and torturing small animals, those two factors are associated with child abuse. Bedwetting after the age of five has a moderate association with child abuse. So not everyone who is abused as a child will engage in those behaviors, but it's more likely that they will if they're abused than if they weren't abused. So what do we know about the link between child abuse and violent behavior? Well, the risk of violent behavior does increase if someone's abused as a child. So there is a link between violent behavior as an adult and child abuse. So the McDonald triad might not predict violent behavior in the mechanism that a lot of people think it does, like the one we see in the movies and TV when they talk about serial killers or other violent people and look at these risk factors. It may predict it through another causal chain, which is child abuse may lead to those behaviors, and child abuse is linked with an increased risk of engaging in violent behavior. So in a sense, it's reasonable to say that the McDonald triad is linked to violent behavior in some way. They both share child abuse in common, the McDonald triad and violent behavior as an adult. But is there a direct link? There doesn't appear to be. Both appear to be the symptom of something else. Now, it's also important to note that with the McDonald triad, one of the keys to that research was that those three events had to appear together. And what we know now about these events is they're really independent of one another. So if someone exhibits one of those behaviors, particularly arson or the torturing small animals, that could indicate a problem. The bedwetting, that has a lot of different other causes other than child abuse. That could be a cause. We know that is linked. But there are many other causes that could contribute to bedwetting after five. So really, the McDonald triad doesn't appear to have validity in terms of the three factors being held together. But rather, each factor independently seems to be connected with child abuse. And because child abuse is connected with violent behavior, we have that connection between those factors and violent behavior. So the three factors held together, that might not really predict anything. That might not be any more problematic than any three factors or any number of factors that come together that all indicate some sort of problem exists. So what I'm saying is that there's nothing necessarily special about those three factors when they're all present at the same time. They're independent factors, and each of them is a cause for some concern. So why did the McDonald triad become so popular? Well, as I mentioned before, there seems to be a lot of information about the McDonald triad and a lot of interest in violent criminality featured on television and in the movies. Now, these serious offenses, of course, are a problem for society. But again, as I mentioned before, they're not really that frequent. There's a fascination with them, and I think that's what's caused the McDonald triad and other theories about what leads to sociopathy and psychopathy, for example, in becoming so popular. These concepts have probably become popular mostly because of an interest that's disproportionate with how common the violent events are. 
Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. A specific interest that has probably fueled some of what we see in the media and is fueled by what's featured in the media. Today's question is, what is oppositional defiant disorder? Now, this is a mental health disorder that gets a lot of attention, and it's a bit controversial. Part of the reason it's controversial has to do with the subjectivity of the criteria. So, this disorder is characterized by an angry, irritable mood, or argumentative, defiant behavior. And actually, there's two groups. There's symptom criteria for angry, irritable, and argumentative, defiant, as well as one symptom criterion under a category called vindictive. Four symptoms have to appear, and they can be anywhere from these three categories. The symptoms have to appear for at least six months, And the interactions where the symptoms are observed have to include people that are not siblings. So these symptoms do not apply to sibling interaction. So in the first category, we have angry, irritable mood. Now you'll notice here as I'm going through the symptom criteria, that the word often is used in seven of the eight symptom criteria. So for the first one, for angry, irritable mood, often loses temper. Then we have often is touchy or easily annoyed and is often angry or resentful. Those are the three symptom criteria for angry, irritable mood. Then looking at argumentative defiant behavior, we have often argues with authority figures, often defies authority figures, often deliberately annoys others. Notice the use of the word deliberately there, so just annoying others would not qualify. It has to be deliberately annoying others. And then often blames others for mistakes or behavior. The last category, the vindictive category, this one is a little easier to quantify. It doesn't involve the word often. There needs to be two or more instances of spiteful or vindictive behavior in the last six months. 
Now, when talking about this six-month rule for oppositional defiant disorder, it's important to keep in mind that for this disorder, there's a distinction made at age five. So if an individual is under age five, the symptoms must appear most days in those six months. Over five, at least once a week for six months. When looking at the severity specifiers for oppositional defiant disorder, there are three, mild, moderate, and severe, and they're entirely based on the number of settings where these symptoms are present. So for example, home, school, with peers, at work. One setting is mild, two settings is moderate, and three settings or more is severe. So it's a bit of an unusual way to look at the severity specifier when we compare it to how the severity specifier is used with a number of other disorders in the DSM. One question I get sometimes pertaining to oppositional defiant disorder is what is its relationship to conduct disorder? Now generally we think of conduct disorder as a more severe disturbance than oppositional defiant disorder. Technically an individual can be diagnosed with both at the same time, although I wouldn't think that would be the expectation. Conduct disorder has certain features that we don't see in oppositional defiant disorder, like aggression, destruction of property, and a pattern of theft or deceit. Also, oppositional defiant disorder has an emotional dysregulation component that we would not see typically in conduct disorder. So the two can be differentiated, and as I mentioned, technically someone can have both. It could be comorbid. But usually we think of somebody as having either oppositional defiant disorder, or if the symptoms are more severe, they may qualify for a diagnosis of conduct disorder. So what causes oppositional defiant disorder? Well, there's a bit of controversy around this too. There is one school of thought that says that oppositional defiant disorder is really pathologizing normal behavior. That's one school of thought. Another school of thought is that there's a genetic component, although this is really unclear. We don't really know how genetics play a part in the development of this disorder. There is also possibly a temperamental component to the development of oppositional defiant disorder, an etiological component, and this involves emotional reactivity and poor frustration tolerance. So an individual that exhibits one or both of those would be at a higher risk for oppositional defiant disorder. In terms of parenting, and this is the, probably the more controversial area in terms of the etiology of oppositional defiant disorder, there have been studies that show that harsh, inconsistent, and neglectful parenting does seem to be etiological to oppositional defiant disorder. Certainly, we know they are risk factors, and we believe they also may be causal. It may be etiological. Now, again, with mental health disorders, including oppositional defiant disorder, there are a lot of potential risk factors and causes that we don't know about. We can't fully explain how these disorders develop. The best evidence right now suggests that the genetic component could be there, temperament could be a part of it, and the behavior of parents could be a part of it. Today's question is, what is pyromania? Now, pyromania has been featured in a number of television shows and in many movies, but actually it's a very rare condition. The vast majority of individuals who set fires, even those who set fires repeatedly, 
cannot be diagnosed with pyromania. There are six criteria that have to be met in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for a diagnosis of pyromania. Let's take a look at those first. So the first criterion is that somebody deliberately sets more than one fire. The second is that there's a tension or affective arousal before setting fire. The third involves somebody's level of interest with fire and things that are related to fire. So oftentimes we see with pyromania, individuals are fascinated with fire, they're curious about it, they're attracted to it, so that if there's a fire in the neighborhood or nearby, they'll go and watch it. They do tend to seek out firefighters and hang around fire departments. They have a real interest in that. Sometimes we see this symptom criterion related to this idea that some people become firefighters because they have pyromania. The DSM indicates this, but there's really not a lot known about pyromania to start with. And there's really no concrete evidence that individuals with pyromania are overrepresented in the population of firefighters. Certainly, some individuals with pyromania have become firefighters and continued setting fires as a firefighter, but that's extremely rare. The fourth criteria is that an individual gets gratification, relief, or pleasure when they set the fire or immediately after. The fifth criteria involves what's excluded from the pyromania definition. So the setting of fires cannot be for money because of some political ideology to conceal a crime, for revenge or because someone's angry. It can't be done to improve one's living circumstances. It can't be done as part of psychosis, so when delusions or hallucinations are present. And an individual would not have pyromania if they set fires when their judgment is impaired. For example, if they are intoxicated. The last symptom criterion indicates that a diagnosis of pyromania is not given if it's better explained, if the behavior is better explained, by conduct disorder, antisocial personality disorder, or a manic episode. So as you can see from looking at the criteria for pyromania, there are a lot of reasons why someone who sets fires would be excluded from this diagnosis. And it would make sense that this diagnosis is extremely rare. Oftentimes, one of those reasons, the vast majority of times, one of those reasons would be present. Somebody would set fires because of money or to conceal a crime or some other reason that's excluded as part of the definition of pyromania. Now, individuals who are diagnosed with pyromania oftentimes do prepare for quite a while before setting a fire, and oftentimes they are indifferent to the consequences of setting fire. They're indifferent to a loss of life and to the destruction of property. Pyromania is comorbid with a number of mental health conditions, including substance use disorder, depression, bipolar disorder, gambling disorder, and other disruptive impulse control and conduct disorders. As I mentioned, pyromania is extremely rare. The prevalence in the population in the United States is not known. There is some information that points to how prevalent it may be, however. There are studies that indicate that even among individuals in the criminal justice system who set fires, who were there because they set fires, 
only about 3% meet the full criteria for pyromania. So this would be a particularly high-risk population for this disorder because they actively set fires, and even still, they don't qualify for the diagnosis the vast majority of the time. Now, we do know that males are diagnosed with pyromania at a much higher rate than females. Again, there's not a lot of information available about pyromania or a lot of studies, but some studies indicate that more than 90% of individuals who have this disorder are male. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.